You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. Can't help thinking that somewhere in the universe there has to be something better than man. Has to be. The words are Charlton Heston's. Get out a last signal to Earth and we've landed! The world he finds out in the galaxy will challenge every idea you've ever had of civilization. A planet where man is the lowest order of living things, and the superior beings are apes. They build the cities, make the laws, the gods, and control the guns that hunt a race of lowly, terrified humans who run wild in the jungles, are caged in the prisons, and stuffed in the museums. 20th Century Fox transforms the motion picture screen into Planet of the Apes. Pierre Boulle's finest novel since Bridge on the River Kwai. The world gone insane. An upside-down civilization could not be real. Yes, a world of madness and terror. Man has no understanding. He can be taught a few simple tricks, nothing more. people worked long and hard to answer the question of what a civilization would be like where the evolutionary process has been reversed and apes were the superior species. Hundreds of technicians and the largest number of makeup artists ever assembled assisted the producers, the writers, the director, and the cast. Dr. Cornelius, Roddy McDowell, Dr. Zira is played by Kim Hunter. Dr. Zayas is portrayed by Maurice Evans. Nova by Linda Harrison. Now the tribunal has placed you in my custody for final disposition. You realize what that means? No. Emasculation to begin with. Then experimental surgery on the speech centers, on the brain. Eventually a kind of living death. Planet of the Apes, beyond your wildest dreams. Hi 
Hi, everybody, and welcome once again to GeekFest Rants. My name is Carlos Perone, and today we have a series of things we're going to talk about. Number one, we have a Planet of the Apes comic book. Not exactly your flimsy comic book, more of a hardcover special edition, if you will, released a few weeks ago called Planet of the Apes Visionaries. And this is a special edition, which is based on the original Rod Serling screenplay and story outlines that he put together for the film before it was modified a couple of times. And we're going to go through the entire history of how that happened and the major differences for the look and the feel of the story and this comic, not only in the overall story, but the individual characters, how they differ also from what we have grown up with and are used to right now. Then we're going to return to our posters of the month. We're a little late running behind on that. I have for you today Predator, the original Predator poster, and I also have the Star Wars Burger Chef four set of posters to go over and their particular history too of how they came about and how are they different than regular posters and that kind of thing. You know, we love doing these poster segments because, uh, you know, sometimes we do find stuff we never uh, were aware of. So let's get started with Planet of the Apes Visionaries. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. Worst crossover ever. Oh, by the hammer of Thor! Well, what brings you guys here? We're looking for a recommendation about comic books. Oh, well, I recommend you don't open a store and sell them. My spidey sense is tingling. All right, I want to talk about a comic that just came out, a comic book, which is really in the hardcover presentation. Uh, meaning it's a single volume in a hardcover. It is called Rod Serling, Planet of the Apes Visionaries. I've heard about this being put together a while back, and I've been eagerly waiting for it because I do know a little bit of the history of the film, the making of the film. I've done a few shows about it in the past, and there was one name that always kept popping up in the writing of the film, and that is Rod Serling, super well-known writer from the Twilight Zone and a whole bunch of other stuff, you know, back in the 60s and even in the early 70s. And one of the things that he worked on, the many, many scripts that he worked on, was a original draft, a number of original drafts of Planet of the Apes. The way the story goes is that he was approached early on to start putting together this story based on the book. Now, you have to remember the book came first. It is somewhat very different than the final product of the movie. So he had that to start with, at least. Different producers were involved at the time. The rights of the book kind of changed hands a number of times, but he started working on it. And as he worked on these scripts, the rights kind of changed hands and the players also kind of changed hands. Different directors got involved until eventually what you know, finally became the, the 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 final, you know, group was finally in charge and, and able to put it all into action as far as production. At a certain point, Serling kind of lost interest in the project 
because the project kind of kept dragging on and on as, as a lot of times a lot of these projects do and looking for more funding and and this and that and the other. So at a certain point, a different writer took over. Now, from what I understand, the film pretty much is pretty, pretty faithful uh, looking to what he put together on his particular final draft. However, from even his own words, because the script changed hands then afterwards, different writers kind of started contributing and another writer completely took over, the dialogue uh, considerably changed. They added a little more humor to it. The tone in general is a little different. But it's really, you know, the foundation, you can kind of say, you know, starts with the book, then Serling, then the final additions made by the last writer, who I believe his name is Michael Wilson. You know, that's where it all kind of ends there, and that is what goes to the production. Now, this comic book is based on more or less all of his drafts. Granted, there have been many, he did many, many drafts, probably something in the teens or even higher as far as how many drafts. Now, keep in mind, a lot of times when you do a draft, it doesn't necessarily mean you're rewriting everything from scratch. You could just rewrite a scene and now it's draft number four and then it's draft number five and six and so forth and so forth. And as the script progressed, little tweaks were being made here and there and, and you know, and the draft count got higher and higher. Now, this comic, like I said, takes from the majority of his scripts, obviously, especially the later ones, this way, you know, it, it kind of holds the integrity of, of his vision of the story. The comic book writer is Dana Gould, and the art is by Chad Lewis. Now, Dana Gould is a name that I, I kind of like, I'm like, that sounds like a familiar name, and it is. He's a... At least I used to remember him, I think, as a pretty medium well-known comic who apparently now uh, or or maybe all along has also been a writer and is now taking a shot at writing comic books. So it, it was kind of a little unusual, you know, to find his name in this. The story itself is a little different. There are certain aspects that are different. The main character is no longer Taylor. The name, the main character is Thomas. And it was believed or it's been hinted that one of the reasons they changed from Thomas to Taylor was that when Charlton Heston was involved or became involved with the film, he naturally changed a little bit of the character. Uh, the producers also wanted a, a rougher, more, I don't want to say man with no name, but a more of a man's man, you know, a loner, a, a cynic which, again, could have been part of the influence of the 60s in terms of the, the type of roles that they wanted men to portray, as opposed to Serling's original intent of having that character be more of a thinker, an emotional individual. I don't want to say, uh, you know, the difference between uh, uh, Clean Eastwood and Alan Alda <laughs> in terms of two different type of portrayals of what the American – male is. Those are completely opposite ends of the spectrum in all shapes and sizes. But that is one of the things they were talking about, that here they wanted him to be more um, uh, uh, 
not so much of a cynic. If you remember in the movie, uh, you know, he's kind of fed up with Earth and he's fed up with mankind and he just wants to kind of get out away from it all and he doesn't care and whatever. Granted, once he gets to where he's going, things are, you know, upside down. But he's already starting off with this bad attitude. Here, I think in the comic, they kind of portray him – you know, as soon as he arrives and we start to kind of get to know him, more of a – he's not that cynical. He's just another one of these guys that find themselves in an unusual place and they're not sure exactly what to do. Now, the ship that they're in has them all already in their hypersleep chambers. And they appear to be closing in on something that results in some kind of a – I don't want to call it, a, call it a crash landing, but something kind of goes wrong that makes the ship land. And the ship that's portrayed here looks uh, pretty different than the one in the movie. This one is more of a traditional rocket ship shape with the big engines, you know, three or four big engines, and then the long tube to the cockpit and the tip. And it lands on ground, on solid ground. With the, you know, with the engines down, you know, as, as a rocket ship, I guess, theoretically is supposed to land. Now, as a result of the crash, they do suffer a loss of one of their crew members. In the movie, it's a lady, I believe. But here, it's just another crew member uh, that died. They don't specify whether it's a man or a woman, really. But they do point out that there is a crack on the hypersleep chamber so that could account for what went wrong. In terms of how decayed and mummified the corpse is, obviously leads them to believe that a long time has passed because they can't really tell also how much time has really passed. So what they do is they decide to go out and explore. They put on their spacesuits because they have no idea what kind of environment is outside. And they kind of go for a walk where they are able to test out the air and figure out it's breathable so they can take off their helmets and they can breathe comfortably. And then they deploy the following day a kind of like a rover, like a like a truck rover, so they can go a little further out. And they are at first in a deserty kind of environment, some vegetation, not much, but as they get closer and closer to some farther areas, it becomes more vegetation and more vegetation, kind of like in the movie, but they're still granted in this rover, this vehicle. They're safely inside the vehicle. They do reach an area where there seems to be some kind of a scarecrow-y looking thing, very large with what could be animal bones and furs and all kinds of weird cloth. Obviously, some sort of a warning to whoever's around there to either stop here or go back or whatever. And as they're examining this thing, they hear a crashing sound in the background and they go back to the rover and one of the canopies has been smashed. There's like a coconut or something that went through it and they're not sure if somebody threw it or if it just fell off a tree or whatever. So they just keep – they get back on and they just keep driving and they encounter more of these scarecrow looking things. All of a sudden, they reach an area where the – rover no longer can move. It seems to be stuck in uh, mud or something. And as they start to examine what's happening, it is being sucked into the ground because apparently it stopped in quicksand. So the rover starts to sink and sink and sink. And one of them almost goes under with the rover too. And they are able to pull him out at the last minute. So now they're kind of stuck in the jungle. 
and the viewer starts to notice that somebody is looking at them. They approach what appears to be the shore. There's the sea in front of them. And they all go in the water to kind of clean themselves off and to cool off and to get the mud and the uh, quicksand off their body. But as they come out of the water, they're approached by some sort of natives who look very human, look very primitive. And they start kind of interacting with them. And one of the things that they kind of suspect is that they are having a problem with their clothing. They don't understand these three guys wearing these space jumpsuits, if you will. So they take off their tops to kind of discard them so that it makes them makes these natives feel better. And they do, but they grab their jackets and take them away. And they all kind of go about their business, whatever their business is. They're just hanging out there, sitting, drinking water, you know, whatever. And then as they're kind of milling about and, and you know, the, the astronauts start following them, they start to hear this strange sound coming from beyond the jungle. And they all start scattering all over the place. And when the strange sound turns into is a couple of helicopters. So Thomas starts kind of waving, you know, his arms up and, you know, kind of letting them know that they're here. So, you know, he's figuring, I guess we, we're being rescued. Maybe we're somewhere civilized so we can get rescued. But one of the uh, natives starts to kind of grab his arms and bring them down as, as if they don't want him to wave them down. And then in the distance, you also see a jeep coming towards them, like an army jeep. However, on the jeep, you can then clearly see that there are some sort of soldiers on them, but they're apes. And at that point, one of them takes a rifle and shoots Dodge, which is one of his crewmates. And everybody scatters like crazy at that point. Thomas is wounded in the throat, which is preventing him from being able to talk. And it would appear as his other crew member is also injured in the process or killed. We're not entirely sure at this point. So they're shooting from everywhere. The apes are, again, they're all in... Soldier uniforms, they're shooting as they're standing, they're shooting from the cars, they're shooting from the helicopters, and they're just massacring this particular tribe, I guess you could call it. And some of them are being gathered up and put in nets and thrown into trucks. And Thomas is pretty much left for dead there, but then they find him and they kind of gather him up too and say, all right, let's take him in too. But they kind of take a, you know a curiosity over him in terms of thinking that maybe he was an escaped specimen from a zoo because of the clothes that he was wearing, you know, the pants he was wearing that are kind of like, they think that they, this creature stole the pants from one of the apes because, you know, why would a creature wear pants? Anyway, it's clear also to see that the majority of all the people that are there, they're all dead now. They are piled up in a high pile of dead bodies, but only a few of them are being taken away, you know, for real, still alive. We now jump to Thomas, kind of coming in and out of consciousness at a what appears to be a hospital or something like that and then waking up in a cage which is pretty much follows the what we saw in the movie of of Taylor waking up in the in that zoo infirmary uh kind of situation one difference here is that he's able to write his you know he's able to communicate because he can't speak instead of stealing the, the notepad he does it by Actually opening up his wound on his neck and being able to write on the wall with blood, which is kind of really uh, gross if you think about it. Now, one thing I have to mention is the look of the apes. In this book, they purposely, and they mentioned it, they purposely went with a different look 
not the movie look of the final design of the apes. From what I understand, for the movie, they kind of removed uh, some of the features of, of regular apes. Uh, they made him a little more human-looking, both so I guess it would be more pleasant to the eye and easier to manipulate uh, with the prosthetics. So what they did with the story here in the comic book, they went to the look of the actual screen test. If you guys remember the screen test, and I'll try to include a clip of that, the initial screen test for the makeup was more ape-like. And as a matter of fact, in future films, they kind of went in that direction. Even the Tim Burton version of Planet of the Apes, they went more into an ape-looking apish. More hair in the face, more ape features, less human, more ape. Well, this is exactly what they've done here. All of the major characters are more ape-looking, but the contrast is so large when it comes to their dress. You have more ape features, but you have more contemporary clothing. Remember, they specifically in this story wanted to remain contemporary. And at that time, contemporary meant, I guess, like the 50s or 60s, if you will, you know, that kind of looking. So you get a lot of, you get a lot of that here in terms of what things look like. So while they're investigating Thomas, uh, they go through some of the similar beats that are introduced Nova into the story, a, a companion for him. He is eventually brought uh, kind of like into the city to be presented into a scientific community, into the public, uh, about this talking man that they found, which is a little reminiscent of one of the sequels of Planet of the Apes, where, you know, we, we, we get to see the apes in modern time and how they're being brought about and people are curious about them. And they're initially friendly, even though behind closed doors, there is a sinister plot against them. Well, here, it's a similar thing, too, where initially, at least, they're not trying to keep them quiet or as quiet or as hidden as they do in the final film. He's exposed to the city and you get to see a full-blown rendition of the city, which again, looks exactly like what the city life would look like, you know, again, in the 50s or 60s, except, you know, movie theaters, restaurants, all types of things. Except one of the really cool things is that you see crosswalks on streets Instead of waiting for traffic to stop, they have these, if you call them like monkey bars, crossing from street to street so you can avoid having to wait for traffic to stop. And you see the apes climbing and hanging and crossing. You know, that's a really ingenious little take on that. But that whole sequence also uh, turns into uh, Thomas sort of escaping and going into a zoo, uh, an actual zoo where he sees man on display, you know, in a cage, acting like what he would remember apes would act like behind a situation like that. They have a reverse scenario where you have an ape with like what appears to be an accordion and a little girl with a little hat. And it's kind of like the, 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 the man with the little monkey. It's a reverse situation where, the, the, you know, they're there for entertainment. So while all this is happening and, and he's kind of uh, pleading his case eventually to this committee, you know, again, behind closed doors, Dr. Sayas is really plotting something different. He's insisting also on, uh, you know, the, the, the best way to study this individual is to kind of take him apart, which kind of brings us back to, you know, the mindset of the actual film. During this presentation, he's also juggling these balls to show how smart he is and he's talking to them and he's answering questions and this and that. 
but he is troubled by what he sees in terms of he finds some of his crewmates finally, again, similar to the film, that they've been stuffed, taxidermied into a, a museum and that sort of thing. There is more, and again, of a connection here with him not being so secretly hidden, at least protected at, you know, by Cornelius and Zira at first. So being able to be integrated and broad, you know, to be able to research what he's learning about this civilization that he's, he's, he's living under right now. And we get to a point where he even starts to teach Nova how to behave civilized and how to even speak. And we get little bits and pieces of that starting to happen, which again, makes Dr. Zayas a little more concerned about the possibilities. So later on, they are brought on to a archaeological uh, dig, in a way similar to the, the first film. This is a little more organized, a little more widespread, a little less hidden. And in the dig, once again, they find that they have this little doll that they find. So, you know, he's making that same connection that Taylor makes, that, wait, wait a minute, you guys might have been descended of humans, not, you know, the other way around. And they even find a chamber where there appears to be a, the skeleton of a dead human with modern clothes, possibly military-looking clothes, you know, and that sort of thing. Now, while this is happening, we get a glimpse also, a quick little side glimpse of back at the, um, the medical lab that some of the humans, especially one of them, who seems to be starting to talk and the apes really don't appreciate that. They beat the crap out of him. So being back at the dig site, we once again see Zaius, I believe, ordering the destruction of the site to just blow it all up because they don't want to let this discovery, you know, be brought out to the rest of them. Again, that this kind of mimics a little bit more what we had seen in the original film. Now, here's where things change a little bit more drastically. Thomas gets loose. He commandeers a helicopter, kills a pilot, and flies over to his ship where his ship had landed because he wants to try to get away, but he realizes he can't. Zira and Cornelius meet him there, and, you know, they kind of say goodbye to each other, and they understand that, you know, he's in trouble. He can't get out of this planet. He's stuck there. He's going to kind of find his way out somewhere else. But before he can get too far, Zayas catches up with his troops to him. And before he can get away, he is shot, fatally shot, which is very different, again, than the ending uh, that we have with the original film. And the ironic part or the twist ending here is that the area where he stops, where he falls down dead, where he realizes he's got no place to run anymore, is in the shadow of some tall structure. And then you get the final shot of that tall structure, which is in the kind of like a jungle, like an open field jungle kind of area. It's the Statue of Liberty. Very different, again, than what we saw in the film where it's, it's at, at the shore as he's getting away. So you do get a, a much bleaker ending here for sure. You know, not only does Thomas, the, the protagonist, dies at the end, and it gives you basically no hope. You understand where you're at now. You understand what happened, but it gives you no hope. That's something that, at least with the film, you know, again, they might have changed that uh, for the possibility of sequels. You never know, but it does have that twist ending. And there is some 
slight controversy, I guess you could say, in terms of the twist ending, the history of it, uh, whose idea was it? Was it this guy? Was it that guy? Some people might claim ownership of that idea, but more or less, it seems to be Serling's idea, the, the way he put it together, how it kind of moved from one draft to another draft to another draft and so forth and so forth, and everybody else kind of ran with it. So overall, I really enjoyed this because not only does it grab the Rod Serling script, but it kind of expands on it too. It gives the artists and the writers a little wiggle room in terms of how to depict certain things. Like I mentioned earlier, the way in which we can visualize how to make these apes look different than the movie. That's a very smart thing to do. Using the test footage as your basics for what these apes are going to look like, giving them more of an ape look, especially to their faces. And even the way they move, I think, here, it's it's more like, I don't want to say what was intended, but it was a different way of doing it. It is still a little vague as to why they didn't do go in the direction of having it look modern, having them be in a modern scenario. Some things I read state that it would have been too expensive, which doesn't make sense to me because the modern look was already there. You could use any old Hollywood set to make it look like a modern city. You know, clothing-wise, it would have been easier. But at the same time, you could say, well, maybe it has to look a little more as if the errors have gone by and and part of the ape belief is trying to to rid itself of, of the human influence that whether they deny it or not deny it or admit it or not admit it, you know, they purposely don't want to live in the old cities. They purposely don't want to dress like their old masters. Question is, how many of these guys are in the know? Is it just the the top echelon scientific community that is aware of what happened, you know, the Zayas type of character, and the rest of the citizens are oblivious, and they just kind of like, well, this is the way it is, this is the way it's always been, you know, that kind of mentality. In the movie, I don't know, I think it makes a little more sense story-wise to, to, to kind of rid yourself of the human influence this way. You can kind of give your people more of a sense of originality and ownership of, of your fate or of your history, at least, even though it's all fake, obviously. This also is a little bit more, in a way, not directly, but in a way, kind of like the, the original book where it, it is a, a planet that is populated by apes, but the technology is completely reverse, you know. And they, they seem to have adopted that more here, which is, I guess, what Rod Sterling decided to do. But overall, I was very, very happy with it. I'm, I'm really impressed in terms of how the story slightly changes, and it's kind of the same. You know, and it's no big mystery that, just like with any successful film, by having a specific ending where you do not kill off the lead character, you give yourself a little more wiggle room for possible sequels, and obviously... Somebody decided this was going to be a franchise at some point. They decided to capitalize on it. The fact that you had five films, you know, and sometimes they really felt like they were really, really pushing it, especially with the last one. The last one is so my least favorite one of them all. Again, the original one is my favorite, obviously, because the original, it's kind of like Star Wars is always the original. It's the best one. Even though Empire is a better film, Star Wars is the originator. Planet of the Apes is the originator. I would say my second favorite one is probably... Conquest. I really like Conquest. The more I think about Conquest, the more I, I kind of uh, marinate on Conquest, the more I like it because it's the, it's the historical bridging gap between what happened, how we got to that point. So I really enjoy that one. It'd be interesting to know if they would do 
other ones of these. I don't know if there were other earlier script versions by other writers, other, but I think this one might be the only one because it is Rod Serling. And that's the whole hook of this particular book is the fact that it's such a prolific you know, genre individual that was involved that people kind of forget. They kind of forget that he was involved in this and he did a lot of the heavy lifting of the story came directly from him. So this is a, a special comic book edition that I strongly recommend. You can collect them all. You are a toy! Batteries not included. Just get those wonderful Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the $6 million man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. For today's posters of the month entries. First up, I have a set of four Star Wars posters. Uh, now, these posters are probably the oldest ones that I own that are original. And they're not exactly the one-sheet movie ones that we're more familiar with, but some of you might actually own these or a offshoot of these posters. And what I'm talking about here is the Burger Chef four-poster offer also known as the Burger King four-poster offer, because depending on where you got them. This is a series of four posters from Coca-Cola that depict different characters, different scenes in Star Wars. What's interesting about these posters is that, once again, they were originally sold at a franchise called Burger Chef, which went out of business many, many, many years ago. I guess it was similar to Burger King in a way. And the thing was, you buy a Coke you get a free poster. And in this particular case, it was four posters. You, you had to buy four Cokes eventually to, you know, round off your collection. Now, these posters have shown up in three different locations, from what I understand, or three different ways of getting them, because they have three different kind of like copyrights on the bottom. One of them is the Burger Chef, which is the original one. Then there is the Burger King ones, which are exactly like it, except that they have, you know, the different copyright on the bottom. And I believe there was also a Japanese version of this, which I assume was sold or given away or something like that promotional thing in Japan. Now, this is a concept that has been going on for a very long time, and I think it still kind of continues, uh, you know, for the kids, you, it's the Happy Meal thing. You get a toy and you get a, a meal, that kind of thing. And even back then, they were cross-promoting films in this manner. What's interesting about these posters is that the art from these posters would later be used to sell the Burger King glasses. If you remember the Burger King glasses, the ones that they've sold with just about every single Star Wars original trilogy film, I personally never got into them until Empire Strikes Back. I was not around during the Star Wars promotional time when they were um, selling these glasses, but eventually I ended up collecting them, ordering them through eBay or through other places. And I believe I might have done a show about this uh, before, a very long time ago. But what is interesting about these posters is that this is exactly the art that they used to kind of wrap those glasses with this art. Granted, they didn't use the art exactly in the same portrait detail 
you know, looking detail that you do see on these posters. For the glasses, they basically did like a comic book version of these designs. So let's kind of go through the, the four different posters, because in a way, you know, they are trying to explain to you the story of, of Star Wars. They're promoting it. And it's funny, because sometimes you do see these posters hanging on people's walls. If you look at some older pictures of Star Wars theme rooms that people used to have, and then these would show up here and there. It's really, it's really, really interesting. Well, the first one, of course, it has to be Luke Skywalker, and you have a kind of like a dark and uh, a black and bluish, kind of slightly greenish hue tint to the poster. You have your large picture of Luke Skywalker with the princess on the side, Obi-Wan on the other side, just a, a quick, you know, headshots. These are mostly headshots, but then you do have some fuller body shots. Uh, C-3PO's over here, R2 is underneath. You see some stormtroopers in a stormtrooper-y kind of uh, stance. Uh, it reminds me of the uh, one of the, I think it's the action figure stance. Uh, so it, it looks to me like a lot of these poses came directly from still photos that were most likely given to the artist, who, by the way, his name is Del Nichols. And then he basically, you know, did his portraits based on these photos. And I'm not sure if he was the one that decided. I mean, obviously, I'm pretty sure they must have said to him, you know, we need four posters. And here are the main characters right here. So I assume he figured out a way of kind of breaking them apart. There is some repetition into into the different posters. As In other words, uh, these car characters are not completely isolated. So, again, back to the Luke poster, you have the two stormtroopers, and like I said, it does remind me of the action figure, uh, that, that iconic photo of two of them kind of side-by-side side shooting towards the front. And then there's a really cool shot of a, a sand trooper that is not very common, but I, I guess, again, if you really think of all these still photos that were taken during the film, I'm pretty sure that that's one of them right there. And you do have also some TIE fighters and X-wings and the Death Star in the background and engaged in a, in a dogfight. Again, this is very descriptive, if you will, of how it is. But what's also interesting is that if you look at the rear or the background of the poster, it's painted on certain areas with a texture as if the background might have been done on a wall, and a wall that's been stained, like water stain. Now, again, I'm not, uh, I, I had to come and take a look to make sure that th these are not actual water stains on my posters, and they're not. Now, if you look at the Luke Skywalker poster, it does have his name on it, and it's almost like it was written in script. It says, Luke Skywalker, raised on a moisture farm by his uncle on the planet Tatooine, Luke Skywalker is the 20-year-old son of a Jedi Knight killed years before by Darth Vader. Luke's discovery of Princess Leia's distress message placed in the computer bank of R2-D2, a small robot, leads him to association with Ben Obi-Wan Kenobi, last of the Jedi Knights, and a final aerial death struggle with the ultimate galactic empire weapon, the Death Star. Okay, so they're giving you a little bit of a description of... Uh, uh, you know, what, what's happening here. So that's that's kind of neat. It's a nice little poster, like I said. And it does have these weird, rough marks all over it that are purposely on the poster. They're not damaged, but the poster is meant to look a little bit, I guess, distressed might be the word that you can use. From what I understand, they were painted originally in acrylic. So I don't know if that's part of the style that you get with acrylic paints. Up next, you have... R2-D2 and C-3PO, they have their poster. Once again, to me, it looks as if a lot of the uh, art 
used uh, came from photographs. There's uh, the main pictures R2 and C3PO start, you know, standing there full frame. One thing I do notice about that particular one is that the picture of R2 and C3PO used to me uh, looks familiar in terms of I've I've seen it many times used. Difference being is that he has C3PO with his arm kind of raised with pointing his finger forward. And Something tells me that that is not exactly right. I don't honestly think C-3PO can produce that hand gesture easily. That might have been a little bit of artist, uh, you know, creativity or interpretation of what it could look like. And probably also to make it just look different than whatever it is that he's copying from whatever picture. So they're prominently in the center. And then in the background or around the side, you have in the bottom a couple of Jawas. Again, traditional photographic renderings of what these Jawas look like. Some of them, there are certain sections in the bottom where you see the Jawas wearing these kind of like bandoliers or vests on top of their robes. And they're colored very light. Uh, I don't want to say white, but very tan maybe colored, which is something that maybe was an error in terms of he might not not had a color photograph of that. Maybe he had a, uh, I don't know, maybe he had a, uh, a negative or maybe he had a black and white image or something was off because for some reason he decided to give them a white, a very light highlight to those particular costume pieces, which they're not. They're pretty much black. So I don't know what happened there. I don't understand what, why, why he went in that direction with those. Then you have a Tuscan Raider, looks very good. Again, probably came from there. Then you also have Leia inserting the message into R2-D2. You have Luke shooting, which is exactly a shot uh, from the Death Star as he's firing towards where Ben just got killed and he's shooting towards where the Stormtroopers and Darth Vader are. That's right there. There's some planets in the background, not very um, recognizable. And there is a shot of Obi-Wan also in the background, just kind of standing back there, sort of stoic. And he has this circle around his head. Like, I don't know if it's supposed to give him a, uh, a mystical aura around them or anything. This particular poster is primarily in the kind of an orange hue. So I, I guess that's what they're going for in this particular one. And kind of encircling some of the background information, there's like a a circular, like a ring, like the ring around Saturn that you would have. Well, there's this ring going around the background as if that's kind of implying more of an outer-worldly, you know, feel to it. The information that they're giving us on the text, like I said before, it says R2-D2 and C-3PO. And it's funny because you have the, the letters R2-D2 and then in parentheses the word R2-D2, like how to pronounce them. Same thing with C-3PO. C-3PO, and then in parentheses, C-S-E-E-3PO. <laughs> so it's they're, they're teaching you, you know, how these uh, the names are pronounced at the same time. So it says, working as a team, these two robots battle side by side with Luke, Han, Ben Kenobi, and Princess Leia in their struggle against the forces of the Galactic Empire. R2-D2, an information retrieval and computer repair robot, carries Princess Leia's pleas for help to Ben Kenobi. And, along with C-3PO, a human-robot relations automaton, delivers the secret information concerning the Death Star to the rebel forces. So again, we're, they're explaining to us who these people are. Up next, we have Han Solo and Chewbacca. 
This is an unusual poster. This one is a little different. I would say, well, the overall color scheme here is kind of yellow and brown. And the brown really comes from Chewbacca's fur because it covers a lot of the of the poster itself. Uh, what you have here is a, I would say, medium-sized picture of Han Solo with his blaster aimed kind of forward. And in the background, a large, much larger in scale than Han Solo uh, drawing of Chewbacca. You also have a small picture of Ben kind of off to the right with all these weird ovals around him, which is kind of strange for this particular theme. You have the Falcon on the top right uh, flying away from a planet. There's a couple planets up there. Very appropriate because the Falcon, you know, as we find out through all the, all the other movies, he is almost a character. And you also have a little cutout, a little square section, which was is also very unusual because... Up to now, all of these inserts were done as individual characters. But here, it looks like they decided to pretty much take a film frame, a rectangular film frame, more or less, of Chewbacca playing holochess with C-3PO and R2, uh, which is it's just odd that they would pick that picture. I would say that this one is one of the least busiest of them all. It doesn't have as many characters, but specifically characters that are within the theme of of the picture. I mean, it's hard to really be that judgmental about it, but it looks like compared to the last two, they kind of scale back a little bit on the information. Uh, another thing that's a little odd to me is the rendition of Harrison Ford's face. For some reason, to me, it doesn't look as good as what we've seen so far with some of the other characters. Now, granted, the picture of Princess Leia on the Luke poster, she does look a little different. So maybe this is just, it's the artist. This is his rendition of Harrison Ford. And to me, again, it doesn't look exactly like him. But it is still an iconic poster. Chewbacca seems to be the main thing that they're promoting here. I guess they're marketing towards the kids because this is a kiddie kind of poster giving away in a, you know, in a fast food place meant for, you know, meant for kids. So, you know, robots, easy. Luke, he's the hero. Chewbacca and Han, well, Chewbacca, he's, uh, you know, it's Chewbacca. He's a big monstery looking good guy. So, okay, I guess that's what they're going for. Now here, once again, like the one with Luke, in the background, you see this weird texture. Again, it looks like a wall, like a very old, worn wall. And, uh, you know, I had to once again look behind the poster. And been, But when I look at the internet of other people's posters, it's exactly the same. It has this worn, old, stucco kind of wall uh, look to it. Uh, they, they purposely make it look old and worn, you know, under these brown and yellow colors. And for the poster, which kind of makes sense now if I think about it, it is Chewbacca that they're actually highlighting here. It says, just like the other two was Luke Skywalker, R2-D2 and C-3PO, and this one says Chewbacca. <laughs> so here you have it. They're really not promoting Han, and that's why Han is slightly smaller, which is a very unusual thing to do in terms of the order of the characters you're promoting. But again, thinking in terms of like toys and kids you figure more kids would want a Chewbacca action figure than they would a Han Solo back then when the movie was just coming out. So it says, Chewbacca, Chewbacca, the 100-year-old giant Wookiee. Oops, that's a thing that's incorrect or it had to be retconned at some point because I think he's supposed to be like 200, really. Co-pilots the Millennium Falcon for Han Solo. His awesome towering appearance and calculating co-piloting capabilities compliment Solo's confidence and reckless action in face of attack by Empire forces. 
So yeah, there are some errors in the text, in the copy, which I guess at the time they were still trying to kind of sort out. And they are really highlighting Chewbacca. <laughs> so that's that's really interesting. I never realized that. I never realized they were they, they were kind of going in that direction. So our final poster now is the Darth Vader poster. This time around, they go for Darth Vader, which is appropriate again if you think about who are these posters trying to market? It's the kids. It's the buy the toy, buy the action figure kind of cross-promotion. This is a really interesting poster. The color hues, obviously it's Vader, so it's very dark, kind of purple, gray, black colors. You know, those that's the general motif of the poster. Very dark blues here or there. You have a, let's see, kind of like a medium shot of Vader in the background. And then uh, hovering over him is a closer shot of his helmet hovering over the rest of the poster. So that takes up over half the space. And you have a TIE fighter and X-Wing, you know, in a dogfight formation up top shooting at each other. And you have, if you go slightly below, you have the interrogation droid kind of floating there. You have uh, Tarkin's head. You see a little bit below that, another stormtrooper holding a weapon. And behind Tarkin, there's also the highlight of another stormtrooper helmet that looks to me... A little bit of a concept art-ish looking thing. It doesn't look like this time around they actually grabbed a film frame and redrew it like they did on probably all these other pictures of, you know, this particular Vader poster. And there's a Death Star in the background. And you do see the, the pillbox uh, design of the hallways inside the Death Star also. So, again, definitely a different motif for this one. It's darker. It's bad. It's the bad guy. So you have to kind of, like, deal with that. The information below the poster, it says, Darth Vader... A one-time Jedi Knight, the formidable Lord of the Sith, Darth Vader draws his remarkable evil powers from the dark side of the Force. As the enforcer for Grand Moff Tarkin, the power-hungry governor of the Imperial Outline Regions, Vader uses his powers in an effort to crush rebellion against the Galactic Empire. So again, there's very little doubt that these posters are pretty much meant to introduce these characters to kids and again it seems to be major direction of key figures when it comes to probably toy buying these are your weird looking baddies and strange robots and horrible bad guys and strange alien creatures that's what they're kind of going for with these now within the posters they each have the signature of the artist in different locations as i mentioned earlier the artist's name is del nichols not a lot is known about him, and I tried to do as much research as possible. I looked at my some of my Star Wars poster books, and, and, and a few of them do reference these posters. And on one of them, I did find a quick little note saying that the artists painted these in acrylic, and they were done over a weekend, like how fast these were done. And that is something that, if you do some research, again, you will find that a lot of times... You know, they try to hit some heavy hitters when it comes for the one sheets. But then they know that they're going to need additional art for other things. Whether it's toys, novels, all kinds of other material, record covers, you name it. That art will be needed in order to be able to market products. In this particular case, this art was also used on the glasses. So it's really, really interesting how they go all over the place. And like I said, they do hit the heavy hitters every now and then. Names that you will recognize going forward and going backwards. As these are major, major 
poster designers, artists that have done film work, you know, for many, many years before, many, 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 many years after. But you also have a lot of artists that they're either part of an agency or they are just independent artists that they dabble in it and then they move on to a different format of art throughout their lives and they kind of get away from all this. And in this particular case, this seems to be the situation with this particular artist. As much as I could try to find any background information to see if this particular artist had done any other films or has done any other Star Wars posters or anything like that, couldn't do it. And this happens all the time. There are many times where you just run into dead ends uh, with certain names. However, I ended up finding a blog about the posters with, again, very little information about them. And people are blogging and, and, you know, the pictures are there and they're commenting on, oh, I used to have this poster. I used to love it. Oh, I just recently refound them in my attic and that sort of thing. And some people, oh, I just, re you know, I reframed them, put them up. They're wonderful. And then there was one particular blog entry from an anonymous person saying, oh, thank you so much, guys, for highlighting these posters. My late husband was the artist. Uh, he had recently died, and this brings back so many good memories, and my grandkids now have these posters at their home, and I'm so glad that uh, so many people still appreciate his work, you know, that kind of thing. It was like, wow, you know, that's kind of weird how you know, you're trying to look for this information, and now I have a, uh, I have a lead. Here's a lead of, of where I might be able to find more information. So based on some of the dates that were thrown in there, I tried, uh, you know, looking some more in that direction, and I actually found an obituary where this particular man who was in his, like, late 80s uh, had died back in 2013, and uh, he was living in Georgia. And then what I found was a profile, a description of his professional and somewhat personal life. And it talked about how, you know, he was, uh, after he served in the military, he started to study art and he went into commercial art. He started doing work for all kinds of companies, including Coca-Cola, including Lucasfilm, you know, that kind of stuff. Indirectly, you know, leading to Lucasfilm because of these posters ended up being for that. Because, the, like I said, if you do look in the bottom of the copyright, it is Coca-Cola, the, the parent company of the posters. And then later on in his life, he became more like a fine art artist. You know, his style changed and his uh, he doesn't seem to be to have gravitated towards uh, film posters and that sort of thing. But again, this is a typical example of an artist that made a contribution towards something like this and then moved on to something else, uh, which, like I said before, this is something that happens many, many, many times. Not everybody can stay with a specific genre of art. These posters, depending on where you see them, they could be a little expensive, but if you do a little homework and if you obviously go to eBay, I don't know if I got them on eBay or if I got them at, uh, I think I might have gotten on eBay. They were relatively cheap if you think about them. I think they were maybe about around the $10 range each. Which for a poster that's from 1977 and in the great condition that it's in, it is a fantastic bargain. Uh, I am currently looking for one more iconic original poster, which I believe it's the Vader poster that then they airbrushed, uh, you know, the lightsaber glowing. And this is a poster that shows up on many, many movies as part of the kid's bedroom. And he has the traditional stereotypical Darth Vader poster. That's what I'm currently looking for. But these are great examples. Again, these were the ones that were specifically tied to the glasses. By the time we got to Empire and Jedi and those glasses, which I also have, there were no accompanying posters that depicted that information. Empire Strikes Back had, I think, Coca-Cola or Burger King 
posters, but they were not the ones that were used for the glass. That's a completely different poster, completely different artist that hopefully one day we can also uh, talk about. But these were kind of like a two-for-one deal. They were able to use that same art, bring them over to the glasses, which is fantastic. And I do recommend, they are so very simple and 70s looking that uh, you do get that feel. And I'm so glad I got them because like I said, I never had these before. And it is, you know, you, you look at them and you're like, wow, yes, this does belong in, in a 70s kid's bedroom wall. And obviously if I had them, I would have put them up on the wall, and by now, they probably would have been destroyed because I probably would not have taken very good care of them, uh, putting them up and removing them so many times. These definitely uh, deserve to be framed. It's funny. I was watching a movie not too long ago on Netflix, and I started for some reason looking in the background, and the Luke Skywalker poster was there in the background somewhere. And even in a bookshelf, I could see the making of Star Wars Rinsler book on the bookshelf. So you can kind of tell that whoever this uh, filmmaker was, or maybe the set designer, probably a big Star Wars nerd, to go that deep into uh, such a vintagey poster to put up there. For our second poster on this month's Posters of the Month, we are going to look at Predator, the original poster for Predator with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Coincidentally, this is also a movie that has just been released in its latest sequel, reincarnation, reimagining, whatever you want to call it. Somewhat predictably, another possible flop on the box office and critically. Uh, these films have not done very well with its many uh, attempts at continuing the franchise. Nothing really beats the first one. The first one was just fantastic. I kind of like the one they did with Adrian Brody a couple of years ago, too. I think that one was called Predators. I don't remember. But what we're talking about here is the original 1987 Predator. Now, the poster for this film is unfortunately also one of these types of posters that falls on this void of no information. And I do want to give you as much information as possible, but I just can't because... There seems to be nothing out there. I've looked around everywhere, and most likely this is probably one of these agency jobs that get done, and they really don't credit a specific artist. They don't profile anybody, and you can kind of tell why in a way, because it's a very, how should we say, high concept, Photoshop-y kind of <laughs> ad that they chose to promote this movie with this poster. Nowhere near traditional 1980s or 1970s, for that matter. You know, brushed, artistly uh, painted on design. No. This poster, I believe, was probably inspired by the fact that Schwarzenegger was the star of the film. The basic design, and you will see the picture that I post, is the word Schwarzenegger on the top, a futuristic distorted image of Arnold Schwarzenegger in the middle, and in the bottom you have Predator. Soon the hunt will begin. That's the poster I have. You have the credits, and then it says starts June 12th at theaters everywhere. So this is kind of a, I guess you could call it a preview poster, but it's weird because it has all of the cast's titles underneath it. It even has the rating on it. So I believe that for the actual release, all they did was remove the soon the hunt will begin and, you know, the date underneath. And they basically had the poster already there. Uh, so there was very little change in how the final product uh, looked. So I guess you could consider this to be a preview poster. Then up kind of near the top, you also have little taglines that say, 
Nothing like it has ever been on Earth before. It came for the thrill of the hunt. It picked the wrong man to hunt. You know, it's kind of cheesy, kind of 80s, kind of whatever you want to call it. But yeah, that's what that is. And again, one of the things that makes this poster a little different, and it's something I guess you could call it somewhat original, is that the entire frame of actually the picture of Schwarzenegger, which is kind of like a medium shot, him holding a gun, very typical 80s action pose and design, if you will, is a what looks like to be a computerized or a television uh, eyes version of something looking at Arnie and with a big target over, kind of like he's being looked at through some kind of a um, telescope, a gun scope. And all around them, you can kind of see the a little bit of the um, infrared effect that they use in the film for whenever the creature is looking at, at a character. And it is slightly different because, yeah, in the movie, you when you do see the creature's point of view, you do see all that red and yellow and green over everything, including the, the individuals that he's hunting. For the poster, you do have a little bit of that alien writing on it. I don't know how accurate it could be. Uh, and you do have a little bit of that effect around the picture of Arnold. However, they do try to keep his picture, I imagine, somewhat recognizable. Because this particular poster is something that is a traditional, I don't know if you want to call it 80s trope or just a general poster trope that is basically highlight the star. The whole point of this poster is to highlight the star. So in other words, if you would have seen this poster and it didn't start Schwarzenegger, it started some other actor, most likely you wouldn't see his name in the top of the poster and it would look kind of cheesy. It would look like a kind of like a typical or kind of stereotypical 80s sci-fi action-y type of film. Now, when I'm talking about having the, you know, the name on the top, this is something that started happening, I don't know exactly when, but definitely with Schwarzenegger, when it came to advertising his films. And you kind of see this also with somebody like Sylvester Stallone, or Jean-Claude Van Damme, or I don't know, maybe even Chuck Norris, or uh, Steven Seagal, any of those A, B, C, and D level action stars of the 80s. Even Bruce Willis at some point kind of hopped on this bandwagon. The poster or the advertisement for the individual film that they happen to be promoting, instead of highlighting the cast or instead of highlighting the story, it basically highlights the actor. It's a star vehicle. So I would contend that... You know, it's a different kind of movie, uh, the way that it is marketed. And maybe the marketing team decides, you know, can this movie sell tickets based on its premise or can it sell tickets more effectively based on the star? And to me, whenever you throw the title up there so big and large, it's because it's the star. That is what they think they're, it's worth promoting. They're not that confident, I think, in the material. So they rather gamble on getting people that are not that interested in story, but they just want to see another Stallone film, another Schwarzenegger film, whatever happens to be that star. And again, you do also see this with these, like I said, with these B, C, D level action stars that they don't make near the kind of money that these giants were making in the 80s. But it kind of fell under that. It kind of fell under the, I just want to go see the next Jean-Claude Van Damme film. I don't care what he's doing. Just, I just want to see him, you know, shooting guns and punching people. Now, in this particular case, 
you got the best of both worlds. Because in a way, they are choosing to promote the film by having Schwarzenegger be the, the, the draw. And on the other hand, they scored a hit. The film is actually good. It's a fantastic, awesome film. Another classic, you know, for the 80s as far as sci-fi adventure action, you know, that kind of thing. By this time, by 1987, Schwarzenegger is on fire. His first big film was in 82, which was Conan the Barbarian. He had other films before, minor films, but Conan really all of a sudden brought him to the top. And after Conan is when you start to see his name pop to the top. Terminator, they did it. Boom. Right to the top. Schwarzenegger, and then that's it. And then you start to see this kind of pattern. On most of his other films throughout this time period, it's the name. The name is what leads. The name leads. Now, granted, he doesn't have 100% hits. You know, for every hit, he's kind of hitting maybe one or two bad ones. But by this time, he's already such a superstar that... At least throughout the 80s, you cannot stop him. And he will get that top billing no matter what. Uh, Like I said before, the two giants of that time were him and Stallone. And you notice that also on Stallone films, you do have that that same uh, type of marketing. Because, yeah, you're you're marketing to a different kind of audience, like I said before. They're not really that interested. (laughs) You know, no offense. They just want to see things blow up and people get their butt kicked. But throughout the 80s, Schwarzenegger maintained on top. I would even say he surpassed even Stallone for that matter. But people that were looking for him to be in in their film, whatever film they happened to be promoting, when it came time for posters, this is what they kind of did. And they kind of stuck with this format for quite a while. I would go as far as to say that the fact that they have a slightly distorted picture of Schwarzenegger in this poster, it's a little dangerous in a way, because if you're trying to draw people in by the presence of the star, it's usually what they do is they put a big picture of, you know, a very nice picture of, very action-y picture of the star. Here it's a little bit distorted because it's, it gives you a little bit of that sci-fi feel, I guess, but it works. Like I said before, the name is what really puts, you know, butts in the seats of the movie theater. And This is a period, like I said, you're talking about Conan. Then you had Conan the Destroyer, the Terminator. Boom, he explodes on the Terminator. Red Sonja, nothing. It does absolutely nothing for him. Same thing with Conan the Destroyer, more or less a bomb. But then you have Commando, another film where he is completely the star of this film. It's advertised, his face, his name, you got it right there. Raw Deal. Eh, a little bit of a bomb. Then you got Predator, a huge, huge hit. Then you have The Running Man, eh, kind of mild hit, more or less. Red Heat, nah, not much. Again, Schwarzenegger, the name you promoted. Uh, then he started, uh, you know, he started tr- trying some comedies. Twin, Total Recall, another big one for him. Kindergarten Cop, again, in the comedy route. Then you have Terminator 2. Once again, you put his name up on top. And that kind of was the beginning of the decline, I think, of of Schwarzenegger in terms of he had a little too many flops after Terminator 2. He did get True Lies, which was his last hurrah, if you will. But then after that, it kind of went downhill, and that was, I would say, the, the end of him. Now, don't get me wrong, he kept working like a maniac, and everybody wanted him to do sequels left and right. He did all those expendable films with Stallone, which, again, it's as far as I'm concerned, they're just a cash grab, an ironic cash grab at the nostalgia of the 80s action star. But he has continued through 
now still working obviously he doesn't get this kind of draw and i don't think they can promote him anymore the way they used to even the posters nowadays they can't just say schwarzenegger and people are like yeah huh who cares you know he had his peak i would say through the 80s mid to late 80s into the early 90s and that was it and the predator poster like i said before is a perfect example of this different kind of promotion, you know, we, I think we talked about in the past about the Rambo 2 poster, First Blood Part 2. Again, very similar to this one where you have the muscle sweaty guy holding the gun, the name on top, the, you know, the title on the bottom, and everything else kind of fades into the background. For this particular film, it fits perfectly, you know, what you're trying to achieve. And like many other times, you have all these bombs that still are marketed this way. This one hit a bullseye, a complete and utter bullseye in terms of critical, financial, and professional success for Schwarzenegger. Luckily for me, this is one of my original posters. This is a, an actual complete, complete original. I bought it, I think it was back in 87 when the movie had come out because I love the movie so much. And there are not too many variations as far as I can tell because this is the only way that we're kind of promoting it. There might be some slightly different international ones, but because at the time it wasn't known, you know, how successful this movie could be, they didn't do, you know, like a dozen different posters and then use them for different types of marketing venues. This is pretty much the picture that I think I've seen most of the time show up on other stuff, whether it's a book or a soundtrack or whatever. This is the, the traditional, you know, perfect marketing device for this film. All right, well, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. We started off with Planet of the Apes, the Visionaries comic book that came out a little bit ago. I really enjoyed it, as you can probably tell by my review. I really, really hope that they are able to do some future ones. I don't know if there's any more important or historic aspects to Planet of the Apes, but maybe this is a line that might expand into other films where we can see other screenwriters perception or view of how the film should have gone or how they would have written it, you know, before other revisions were made, you know, that would be an interesting take on, you know, a different perspective on the finished product of a film. That would be really nice. And then we touched upon our usual posters of the month with Predator and the Star Wars Bergeshev posters. As usual, you know, sometimes it's really difficult finding background information. You know, we purposely don't always hit the known names with dozens and dozens of years, you know, of a body of work that these, you know, heavy hitters of poster making, especially movie making, poster making, are out there. Uh, sometimes the posters that we absolutely love come from very anonymous, unknown sources, uh, agencies that don't really disclose who were the actual people, you know, putting together these very iconic posters. But nonetheless, it's still, you know, an image, iconic image, that, you know, whenever you see it, you know, it, it brings you back to a certain era where most times we were younger and, you know, the poster tells a story, at least most of these posters, they tell a story, whether they're done by a, a brush and, you know, acrylic paints or, or whatever, or by a computer 
you know, in terms of photoshopping images and creating some kind of collage, the posters tell you what is important to the filmmaker, what is important to the studio. That's even more important, the studio. Is it more important to highlight the lead actor or is it more important to highlight the story? Is it more important to have a name, a known name on the top of the poster? Or is there enough confidence in the script to be able to try to sell the image of your film based on the story? So, you know, we do get so many different things like that. And with Star Wars, in this particular instance, you know, there is so much art out there, even back then. That's the amazing thing, is that you think that nowadays things are just so cluttered with art that never gets used, and people that get hired and they do art, and that art ends up in a drawer somewhere. That kind of stuff was happening from the beginning, and it's been happening for a long time. People are hired, that art is used, sometimes reused, used for multiple purposes, and you sometimes don't ever hear from these artists ever again. So, on behalf of everybody here, thanks for listening, and we will see you soon here at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. R2-D2, hurry up. Hello, welcome to Burger Show. We'd like a Star Wars poster, please. I knew it. Well, all you do is buy a large serving of Coca-Cola for 49 cents, and the poster's yours. R2, look, it's us. R2, I think we'd better leave. Collect all four Star Wars posters only at Burger Chef. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2018. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots radio network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long.